You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Good evening and welcome. It's really, I know that what a busy time of year this is for teachers, so it's really exciting to see so many of you here tonight. Um, my name's Judy Koch. I'm the Chief of Public Programming and Learning here at the AGO. And I'm very, very happy to welcome you. And we have a great evening planned for you. Um, I, it, I'm excited that you're excited about our exhibition, From Forest to the Sea, Emily Carr in British Columbia. It's an exhibition which explores Emily Carr's perspective on the landscapes and the cultures of North America. I think that this exhibition really inspires reflection on the richness and complexities of Canada's many cultures <clears throat> while illuminating the life and accomplishments of one of Canada's most beloved artists. Um, there, are a, there really are a lot of connections to curriculum um, in this show and, and there's a, there are a lot of diverse subject areas and I think it'll work for a lot of grade levels. So I really do hope that as you walk through the exhibition tonight, one of the things that I really love about teachers um, nights is being in the exhibition and hearing each of you speak with each other about how you're gonna use this and how you could use this with your students, and we always get lots of good ideas from this as well. So the, the most fun part about my job up here um, on these teachers' evenings is the big draw for prizes. So there are two prizes tonight. It's always fun to be able to give something away. So um, the, the second prize, which I'll do first, is a teacher membership, which is a $50 value, and it gives you all the benefits of membership to the AGO. So you get your discounts in the restaurant and in the shop, and you um, receive our subscription to our members' magazines and discounts to classes in case you want to come and um, uh, participate in an art-making class yourself. So the second prize, the teacher membership, is awarded to um, the person with the orange paper that says 303 on it. 303. Oh, well, come on up and get it. Make a fuss. <laughs> It's bad when you hear a teacher say, I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> so the first prize um, is a, as, uh, a self-guided tour to the Emily Carr exhibition for your class. Um, so you can think about the exhibition, you can bring your class a $300 value, and the winner is number 68. I'm going to cut right to the exciting part of our evening, um, and I would like to introduce to you this evening Sarah Milroy, who is the co-curator of this exhibition, From the Forest to the Sea. Many of you will have read Sarah's work um, for many past years. You know her as an, as an art critic and a writer, um, writing in all of our um, most favorite publications, Globe and Mail, Walrus, Canadian Art, Border Crossings. Um, from 2001 to 2010, Sarah was the staff critic for the Globe and Mail, covering major exhibitions here and artist projects um, from all parts of Canada. Um, Sarah um, has 
just put so much time and love and energy into this exhibition that I'm sure this is going to be a, a really engaging talk because it's like we get to crawl around in her brain for, for the next little while. So please welcome Sarah Milroy to tell you more about the exhibition. sorted out here. Um, I thought it was really fantastic when I walked in here that we had Michael Jackson's, you know, don't stop till you get enough, um, with the killer whales rubbing themselves on the beach, because uh, that footage was actually taken um, just about a half a mile down the beach from where uh, I spend the summers uh, up the coast in British Columbia. So I wanted to have it here to sort of set the tone for the evening because like they're obviously having a, a really good party there on the beach and uh, no one really knows what whales are doing, like why they do that, but it seems like the most obvious reason is it just feels so good. So we wanted to start with that kind of mood because uh, for me at least this feels like a party. Uh, when you work on an exhibition, you are alone with your thoughts for years on end. And uh, it is so wonderful to be in a position finally to share what you've done and to share your ideas and your enthusiasm with, with actual human beings, uh, particularly actual human beings that come with lots of young people. So this is really pretty much my ideal audience tonight. So thank you all for being here. Um, I'm not sure... Uh, how much, I presume that there's lots of different levels of awareness about Emily Carr here in the room tonight. So I'm gonna give a kind of a, a quick overview of her and her life, just so you have a kind of a basis for understanding the show, even though the exhibition is not, strictly speaking, set out chronologically. But just in short, like this, this picture that we have up now, I think is kind of emblematic of Carr. Uh, who was a figure who really, uh, born 1871 in Victoria, dies in 1945, really puts herself kind of at the crossroads between two cultures. She is herself a product of a really strict Victorian upbringing, and you can't get any more Victorian than Victoria, B.C. either. Uh, more British than Britain, as we all know, who traveled out there. Uh, her parents were uh, recent immigrants to Canada. Uh, she had brothers and sisters, but she was the youngest, sort of spunkiest of the kids and was always getting in trouble and eating all the chocolates and climbing trees and playing with the cows and generally ungovernable in ways that, of course, are totally endearing to us uh, now, if not to her parents then. Um, but she, of course, developed this tremendous fascination with indigenous culture and what we see in the show is that that begins really in her very earliest uh, earliest artistic instincts. This is just after her, her artistic training in San Francisco as a young woman. She had the fortune slash misfortune, more misfortune surely than fortune, of having her parents both die when she was a teenager. This resulted in the fact that she was able to have her own resources and to direct her life the way she wanted to. And the first thing she wanted to do was leave Victoria and go to San Francisco to study art where she becomes a very competent watercolorist and then comes back home to Victoria to the care of her rather overbearing sisters, but is constantly making forays out into the landscape to, to first and foremost, investigate this other world, this other way of life that intrigues her, which is First Nations culture. These are Songhees. Uh, the Songhees Nation uh, had its settlement close to Victoria. 
and there, we know from photographs that their, their canoes uh, were pulled up on the beach around Victoria. Uh, Aboriginal people came in to trade in her father's general store routinely. There was an Aboriginal woman named Mary who worked in their house that, was, that uh, Emily was very close to as a child. So Aboriginal people for Carr were part of everyday life. And in this regard, as we'll see later, she's quite different than uh, the group of seven, for example, for whom indigenous people were kind of an exotic other. For Carr, they're part of life and uh, a fascinating part of life. But she doesn't really get the bug until 1907 when she travels with the all-suffering Alice, her sister, up to Sitka, Alaska on a steamer. And when she is there, she, she um, encounters her first totem pole. And I think this is a fabulous little drawing in her book, Sister and I in Alaska, that she makes for her sister with an obviously quite uh, suggestive looking totem pole in full view there. She pictures herself in the, in the blue hat, being overwhelmed by the glory of it all, and her sister Alice with the red hair beside her, and this uh, mysterious man who is uh, showing them around. We have um, on an iPad beside the, the actual book itself, which was discovered uh, last year in a basement in Montreal. We thought it was gone forever. Uh, we, ha we have it so you can page through from, from spread to spread and read her atrocious spelling. So have mercy on your dyslexic students because they might turn up to be the next Emily Carr. She could barely spell cat and dog. So it's an interesting note there. Um, she, of course, you know, in, in the Sister and I book, you'll see that she's constantly making fun of herself and often picturing herself as a kind of grotesque, you know, gormless tourist, completely out of it. Uh, but what we can actually see happens there is that she develops what will be her lifelong fascination. It's on that trip that she says, this is what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to make a record of these villages. And, you know, it's really important to grasp the fact that in 1871, when Carr was born, the decade before that, well over half the Aboriginal inhabitants of British Columbia had died in the smallpox epidemics. And in the north, in Haida Gwaii, for example, or up the Nass River, uh, in more remote area, or remote from uh, white settlement areas of the province, um, the death toll had been well over 95%. So in some cases, a number of cases, entire villages died. So when people would show up, there's simply everyone would be dead. And the, uh, the people who did survive tended to be consolidated into two towns, on Haida Gwaii at least, Masset and Skidigat, and all the other uh, towns were standing empty, often with you know, barely um, like traces of dead bodies around. And so it was, you know, it did require a fair bit of nerve to go by yourself into these places. And, you know, Masset and Skidigat were well-known travel routes at Prince Rupert, but not the places that Carr went, often by herself with Aboriginal guides. So she didn't find it the least bit frightening. Uh, she found it fascinating, and I think that that actually kind of overwhelmed any trepidation she might have had about the trip. But we still have to, you know, point out that for a woman traveling alone, and for anyone traveling alone, this would have been... She used to talk about getting the creeps. That was as far as she would would go uh, with that. But she makes these very tender and soulful early watercolors of a very large and ambitious scale documenting these empty villages. And uh, there is really a sense of her solitude, her kind of humility of the way she looks. I think it's really interesting the way she's always 
picturing the totem poles from a low vantage point as if she's looking it up at something that, that overwhelms her. This is very different than the traditional topographic view of a, of a totem village where, they, where, where the, normally the settler artist would survey the landscape and be above it. Carr always, you'll notice, is putting herself down below and looking up as if literally bodying forth the idea of being overwhelmed by something greater than herself, which is indeed how she felt about it. We found some wonderful, rather experimental works on color that uh, we've included here, many of which have not been shown in a museum before. So there are things here that are beyond the canonical Emily Carr that we've managed to find. Um, you can see that the color register here is kind of souping up a little bit. Carr makes two trips of study to Europe, one to London for five years, then she comes back to Victoria and Vancouver again, and then she returns in 1910-1911, studies in Paris, where she has access to the Fauves. She learns about Picasso and Braque, but she's actually more interested in the bold colors of the Fauves and the way in which they modeled uh, forms out of color and you see in a painting like this, which you'll see down the end of a, one line of vision as you come into the second section of the show, that she really is modeling the shapes out of, out of sheer color in a way that's worthy of a European artist like Vlamanck or, or, or other you know, Fauvist artists one could think of, uh, Matisse. Um, this is a, Yan is a village uh, close to Masset and we have the story. Uh, if you want to read something to really bring these paintings to life, I really do suggest Emily Carr's Clee Wick, which was published near uh, the time of her death, uh, 41, and which got her immediately the Governor General's Award for Literature. She'd never written anything in her life before, so I mean, there's really not a lot this woman couldn't do. Uh, which tells the story of her going to Yan and, and making this picture. And we've used Carr's writings a lot in the wall text, so you might find your, your students, I noticed in England that a lot of the young people were very busy with reading her accounts of her own journeys, and they, that seemed to bring them very close to the paintings. This is another wonderful painting of a war canoe uh, in Alert Bay, and uh, we have the little film clip of Edward Curtis's famous film in the land of the headhunters, which was made in 1914, uh, playing beside the painting, and you'll see if you look at that, that it's the same canoe that uh, she paints as the canoe that is dragged up on the beach in that film clip. Edward Curtis, for those who don't know, very famously documented the Aboriginal people of North America and spent quite a bit of time in the Kwakwakwak communities in British Columbia. But he, his impulse was to dress Indigenous people up like his idea of Indigenous people and then shoot them doing things that he thought were really Indigenous-y. Um, and, you know, people have called him to task for this. He would dress them in crazy wigs and make them wear cedar bark clothing, none of which Aboriginal people had done for a hundred years. But, you know, Carr, we can see in a painting like this, her instinct is quite otherwise. I mean, the boat is certainly magnificent, but there are people dressed in contemporary attire on the beach, and her, her instinct is always to show living people in a, in a living world of ongoing culture. Um, there's, there's a big gap of 15 years between this painting, a painting like this, and a painting like this. And what happens is when she's making, uh, when she shows all of these bright Fauvist paintings in a big show in Vancouver, she's hoping to sell a bunch. In 1913, she's hoping to sell, her real dream was to sell them to the province of British Columbia as a, to be a perpetual document of what she presumed to be a vanishing way of life. And uh, what happened was nobody bit and not only did she not have any takers as, as private buyers, but the province said they were too colorful to be reliable as, as ethnographic records, and so they were therefore disqualified from being acquired by the province. And she really kind of hit a wall, and poverty loomed, 
and she kind of threw in the towel. So anyone who is uh, interested in stories of a comeback kid, uh, this is Emily Carr. She pretty much stops having any ambitions to be a professional artist for about 15 years. Runs a boarding house, breeds dogs, makes pottery with Indian designs on it, lives for a while in a tent in her garden so she could rent out more of her house, eats spam for dinner and tinned asparagus. Like, There's some kind of bone-crunching years of poverty here and real despair because it's not like she liked people. I mean, being a landlady would be like, voted least likely to ever be congenial. That would be Emily Carr, you know? So she just hated it, and, but she had to do it. And she, she was able to have enough money to buy this building and, and rent out the room. So that's what she did until she was discovered by Eric Brown, who was the director of the National Gallery, and Marius Barbeau, who was a leading ethnologist of the day, who had seen her earlier 1913 and previous work and heralded her as a genius and included her in a major exhibition in Ottawa, which also came to the AGO, which was then the Art Gallery of Toronto. You'll see a picture of that installation in the show. But they heralded her as the voice of the real Canada. They said she, she should be embraced as a kindred spirit to the group of seven. Uh, Lauren Harris became a very close mentor of hers, giving her critical encouragement, as she did him, in fact, at a time in his life when he also needed a little bolstering. And she comes back to painting, making what you'll see as a definably different kind of work. It's big, it's much bolder, it also tends to be somewhat more tragic or fearsome or uh, sculpture, sculptural and maybe even histrionic at times, this work that she makes between 1927 and 31. I think it's because she's suddenly making work with a view to exhibition in museums, because she's suddenly seeing her work in museums. And I think also she's creating this work into a new environment of thought, which is Eastern Canada with its more alienated, voyeuristic, perhaps um, exoticizing notion of First Nations people. Uh, particularly in her circle in Eastern Canada of, um, of Eric Brown and uh, Duncan Campbell Scott, the, the famous poet who's writing on Aboriginal people is really quite disturbing when you read it today. So I mean, Carr, uh, Carr enters a different environment of thought and steps up to it for three years and then stops completely painting uh, Indigenous people or villages or poles with very few exceptions after 1931, she turns to the landscape herself. I personally think that she felt she'd painted herself into a corner and was finding herself to feel inauthentic, but that's a pure conjecture on my part. I'd be interested to know what you all think when you look in the show. But we have set it up so that you can experience her as being very much in a different moment. I think the paintings bear that out. So you find, you know, Toto Mother, which I just showed you, this one, Blunden Harbor, uh, this is where some, some criticism of Carr's work has crept up in the last 15 years or so because this painting was not painted from life, it was painted from a photograph, which we have, which is this Newcomb photograph of Blunden Harbor, in which you can see there are Aboriginal people making their, doing their daily life things on the beach. They're fixing nets, they're coming in from fishing, this and that. In Carr's rendition of the scene, she narrows the boardwalk, she removes all the people to make it seem like this mood of sort of twilight elegy. And this is not the kind of thing she did earlier in her career. So anyway, as you can tell, I'm fascinated by this period. I will move along now. But um, uh, I do think it's very um, 
thought-provoking. I've just published in Walrus Magazine, if any of you are, are interested, um, this pairing shows up there, uh, a series of photographs that I found over the course of my research on CAR, archival photographs that I found illuminating or disturbing or fascinating, and this is, this is one of those. So if you're interested in photography, there's, there's that to, to look to as well. When, when Lauren Harris and others encourage her to break from painting the totem poles and the landscapes and having her own experience, spiritual experience of the landscape, she enters the phase which I call Emily Carr Unplugged, which is where she starts to paint with oil cut with gasoline so that she can really fling around the, the paints and get a kind of watercolor touch, but with the opacity and brilliance of oil paint on very cheap paper. So they're very, very fragile. We had to beg and grovel to get them here, but we succeeded. So happiness is one of our favorites. Uh, Sunshine and Tumult from the Art Gallery of Hamilton, a glorious thing. Um, these paintings are actually paintings of the edge of the forest, and a lot of these tall, skinny trees that she paints are in fact spar trees that were used in the logging industry. Uh, they would leave one tall tree and to which they could pull, attach pulleys and winches for moving the logs. So even though they are images of the exaltation of the natural world and uh, the life force and so on, they are also timely in the sense that they reflect the changing forest that, that Emily Carr was aware of. And she would just, by this point in her life, she's not traveling so much anymore, so she would get her little caravan, which she called the elephant. She'd get her friends to like drag it out, uh, basically beside the highway outside of Victoria, where she'd sort of set up shop with her dogs and, and rats and her monkey and all of her famous pets and just sort of hang out for a couple of weeks and paint. And she would go into the woods with her pat, pad of paper and take her pack of cigarettes and, and sit there and kind of wait for th things to happen, and, and inevitably they would. So she makes some of the most outrageous and experimental works of her life during this mature period. So she's now into her 60s. So all of us late bloomers out there, you know, take, <laughs> take heart. Because, you know, all of Carr's most important works happen after she's 56, 57, 58 years of age which is really, uh, of course, a, a story that's quite common to a lot of women's lives, for reasons we all understand, but um, never more dramatically than in the case of Emily Carr. And we have a whole room at the end of the show of these glorious sea and sky paintings, which are not so well known uh, to the general public um, because they're works on paper, so I think they're deemed to be of less importance than the oil paintings that are heavier and darker and more solemn that we all know, serious, they look like serious paintings. But I think these paintings are really extraordinary and it was these paintings, in fact, that the British critics in London went completely bananas for, comparing her to Van Gogh without any uh, hesitation or, or Nolde or Munch, other uh, European symbolist artists who had a sense of the vibrating energy of nature that they uh, conveyed in their paintings and she certainly seems to hold her own in that context and has never really been seen in that way before so we consider that to be a really a, a huge success. Um, this is one of my personal favorites. I just think there's such a sense of the rhythm of, of the wind and the sky and the seasons. Uh, this is, you know, we started with the whales rubbing on the beach. It is a landscape that just unfurls in the summertime and it's just ravishingly radiant. The sun stays, it's light until 11 o'clock at night. You know, it's, it's really uh, an extraordinary place and we wanted to try to, to convey that in the show. At the end of the show, you'll see a comparison between this early 1909 watercolor of Beacon Hill Park. This is right 
where Carr used to play as a little girl. It was always near where she lived throughout her life. And at the end of her life, it is the last place she could travel and be outdoors. And you know, she makes the journey as a woman, as an artist, from this sort of genteel, very, very capable painting, which, which does convey a sense of the wind moving over the landscape. And so it's a beautiful, beautiful watercolor. But by the time she is in full midlife and into her mid-60s, this is how she sees that landscape. This is how she conveys it. So it's, it's just an astonishing life journey and, and incredibly uh, inspiring to see her, her endless horizons of freedom that she embraces both as an artist, as a woman, you know, as a cultural traveler between worlds, you know, breaking every kind of boundary that was set in her path. And I think you know, for this, uh, she is just an extraordinary role model to all of us. We did not uh, organized the show as a biographical story. The middle part of the show follows the life, but what we what we decided we wanted to do was have the the exhibition really feel like British Columbia. And one of the things about British Columbia is that in the winter it is very 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 dark and wet, and in the summer it is as I've said very very light and rapturous. So what we did is we we set a kind of contrast. The first gallery has these dark forest paintings. This picture Carr made in Friendly Cove in the north end of Vancouver Island. Um, the, Indian, the Indian church, as she calls it, and it's hemmed in on all sides by forest. It looks quite out of place there. I think in a way it's her kind of commentary on the um, disjuncture between her culture and the culture that she was finding herself in in the rainforests of British Columbia. And this painting is also in that first room. We have these two uh, paintings hanging side by side with the hope that people will wonder why are they side by side. And the reason they're side by side is that I think that this object uh, really seems to be at one with its environment. Um, the curves, the whole way she's uh, expressed the shape of it and the mood of it, it seems to be at one. She's even dampened down the color so that it merges more with the environment as opposed to the starkness of this contrast. Um, I think that's very intentional. She makes these pictures very close to the same time. In this setting of the forest, we've set a beautiful display of First Nations objects that I think your students will really love. We certainly loved selecting them. Uh, most of these objects came from the Museum of Anthropology at UBC with some additional works provided by private collectors that we basically begged uh, until they finally relented. Um, this magnificent seal bowl is really, uh, I mean, I've been all through the collections in Europe. Uh, this is one of the great objects that I've ever seen from the Northwest Coast. We worked closely with uh, Chief Idansu, James Hart from Mass at BC, who is a hereditary chief and a master carver. He advised us every step of the way, both in terms of selecting objects and in terms of interpreting and writing about them, the wall panels, how do we position this culture? And what we wanted to do was have the dark forest scenes have at their center a sense of feasting and ritual and ceremony because the winter season was when uh, feasting and potlatching went on and potlatching, just to be brief, was a, was a ceremony that took place between peoples where one group would honor another group by expensive, uh, lavish feasting and uh, giving of, of beautiful ceremonial objects and, and bowls and rattles and so on, frontlets, silver work and so on. And uh, the bigger a chief you were, the bigger your potlatch was. I guess it's not so different than the world we live in. But uh, people's lavish 80th birthday parties, you know, flying people around. But, uh, the, the, you know, the more you could give away, the bigger a big shot you were. It wasn't exactly not self-interested. 
but it did manifest itself in generosity. So that's why we wanted that first gallery to feel generous, bounteous. Uh, you'll see that there are bowls there that appear to be sticky with the substance. What that is is oolican grease, which is a kind of candlefish that comes up the Nass River and um, uh, is turned into fish paste, which is a delicacy on the coast, so rich that some of those bowls are still uh, oozing this material 150 years later. So we wanted that sort of sense of uh, real fecundity in the landscape to prevail in that first gallery. You can see this one uh, from London, but we have one rather like it here uh, that is still, um, uh, of course, this is a challenge for the conservators, but they're not allowed to clean them because they're so delicious the way they are. Um, and then in the last gallery, we have a big um, display of objects in the sunshine and ocean room, ob objects related to whaling and whales, this beautiful whale head, quack, 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 uh, whale headdress, which would have been danced in the big house on the head and shoulders. This is a humongous creature. It is our sexy beast. We love it. And uh, uh, this section also has a, a beautiful, some beautiful New Chalneth whaling hats and baskets, as well as an extraordinary harpoon. And I just want to caution you to try and slow the kids down around this object. This is probably the most sacred object in the show. And you know, you could make a whole exhibition about this object, but there is audio that goes with this that you know will be you can get on an app that might be hard to share with your students, although they're of course more tech literate than any of us are. But um, we have a, a new Chalneth carver named Joe David talking about the ceremonies that went with whaling, and that would involve nine months of fasting and ritual, uh, and you know, being going into the uh, quartz caves up in the mountains in the snow, and going into these kind of alternate states as the whalers communicated with the whale. So hunting was not the way we think of hunting in the European tradition, which is one of conquest. Hunting, uh, whale, the whale hunt in the Nuchalnath and Macaw traditions was about meeting, and meeting another creature and collaborating in the giving over of the life force from one type of life form to another. And obviously very respectful, a deeply spiritual practice. And you'll see on the, on the bone part of this, um, this harpoon is a lightning serpent is inscribed into it. And the lightning serpent you know, is a mythological creature. Well, we use that term, although that's not favored by First Nations people. It is a creature that lives under the sea, which assists in, um, assists in sort of marshalling the, encouraging the whale to participate in the hunt. And uh, in the moment when the shaman throws the, shaman chief throws the harpoon, he, he becomes the lightning serpent. So there's all sorts of magical practices around this and it's, it's extraordinary to have this object and uh, we were very lucky that the Museum of Anthropology was able to lend it to us. And of course, with an object like this and with the understanding of an object like this, you know, comes a sensitivity to where two things overlap in Carr. One is her sensitivity to First Nations people and their sensitivity to land and to the natural world and to the animal order. The other is environmentalism. And she was way ahead of her time in having a big problem with clear cutting. And uh, there's a whole wall of clear cut paintings uh, in which she shows, you know, this is a culled landscape at the bottom. And normally this painting is talked about as you know, the, the life force asserting itself, and indeed that is the case, but she is noting that the landscape is changing, and she has what may today seem like an inordinate amount of faith in the divine 
uh, wisdom, uh, the power of the universe of God, whatever you want to call it, to rectify our blunders. Nonetheless, she is noting those blunders and scorned as timber, beloved of the sky, is, is the classic example of that. It's one of the great Canadian paintings ever made. We have it as the kind of uh, crowning achievement in that last gallery. And um, uh, I'm so delighted to be able to share it with you and all of your students. So I think that is, um, you know, gives you really a sense of what we pulled together in the show. Uh, we tried to do things like uh, foreground Carr as a, as, a, as, a, as a diligent worker. Often in narratives about women artists, uh, they are, their emotional reaction to the world is, is underscored and they are seen really as creatures of sensation and sentiment and emotion. We wanted to really show, which is why we have a lot of sketches, how rigorous she was and how hard she tried to work and understand things. We also, it's a show that is very different than other Emily Carr shows in the, in the predominance of the works on paper in the show. So there's a bit of a rejigging of the canon here that I'm very happy with, but most importantly for me is the fact that this show really is not just about Emily Carr. This is a show about our country and about how extraordinary this web of societies that stretched across our country from coast to coast to coast was and still is. Miraculously, these cultures are still alive and being practiced across the country. And Carr, uh, beckoning to us from 100 years ago, encourages us to enhance the sensitivity of Canadians today to that beautiful, beautiful web of meaning, tradition, ritual, uh, in, in our world, and uh, we owe Carr so much for being uh, a pioneer in thought as well as a pioneer in art. And um, with that, I will close, and thank you so much for your kind attention. I hope you love the show as much as I love making it. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.